This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is Rebecca Huntley. Much of my time is taken up with discovering what people's opinions are. But the business of shaping those opinions is the subject of today's History Listen. The election campaign of the moment is putting persuasion to the test. It makes it an appropriate moment to look back at one of Australia's most significant political advertising campaigns. It wasn't in the recent past, but 70 years ago. It used our medium of choice, radio. And by good fortune, some of its recordings have survived. We can tune in now and using the benefit of hindsight, see how later media use has developed across issues of truth, authenticity, and how the electorate is represented. This is a story about speaking and listening and their place in the political process, a place that, however old, refuses to go away. So this is the University of Melbourne Archives Repository. This is where we store all of our archival collections. What I have are the original broadcast records. They're fantastic pieces, much larger than the kinds of records that you would play on your home gramophone. But I do need to get some gloves on first. Archivist Katie Wood, ready to unwrap one of Australia's boldest attempts to win over voters. To have an actor a fictitious character as the lead spokesman for your political party. I mean, it's a great investment of trust. Parties in Australia had a reputation for being quite innovative at times. John Henry Austral presents Creeping Paralysis, the story of extraordinary happenings which are affecting your life and mine, your land and mine. I think the John Henry Austral campaign did represent a really significant moment in the professionalisation both of political campaigning but also of fundraising. Hello, my friends. This is John Henry Austral speaking. So began a series of radio broadcasts produced by the Liberal Party in the lead-up to the 1949 federal election. The John Henry Austral broadcasts have already attracted the attention of political scientists and historians, and the online digitisation of the surviving recordings now puts them within earshot of any of us. They offer a remarkable encounter with the concerns of post-war Australians and the determination of the newly formed Liberal Party to form government. Of course, there's nothing new about the phenomenon of political advertising and the rivalry it's provoked among political parties. Sally Young of the University of Melbourne. Sort of ebbed and flowed that sometimes one party was ahead of the others in terms of strategies or techniques, but both major parties were very keen to use advertising to the fullest extent possible, which has had all sorts of repercussions in Australian politics, including the need for money because it's an expensive aspect of campaigning. But even in the beginning, I mean, it was printed ads in newspapers, it was pamphlets, big banners, big colourful silk banners. They're always forms of advertising done. Although we've had elections here in Australia since 1843, the first federal election was in 1901, about the same time that cinema 
started coming into Australia. And the earliest existing political cinema ads come from 1916. Now, that's only two years after the first Australian cinema ads of any type were made. So they really do date back a long time. Dr Lisa Milner of Southern Cross University. She's researched the use of cinema in Australia for political purposes. One of the first politicians to appear in a cinema ad was Billy Hughes. He was our Prime Minister. He appeared in quite a number of political cinema ads in the 1916, 17, 18, 19, 20 period. Some of them were about referendums he held to try and introduce conscription in World War I. And some of them were just absolute stump speeches, as they called them back then. So Billy Hughes, remember, this is silent cinema. Billy Hughes standing in front of a group of people and obviously delivering a speech. And then that was interrupted by the intertitles of what he was saying. As the cinema moved from the silent era into the talking era, as it were, there were still stump speeches. And most of these were very uncomfortable looking male politicians talking straight to camera. A film ad made by the Labor Party just after the end of the war. It's almost classic in its representation of coming good after the war and everyone pulling together and then introduces Chifley in a very positive manner. As election day draws near, the election that follows in the wake of the storm, the eyes of Australia again look to Canberra and in the minds of the people will echo these words of J.B. Chifley. I will not give the people any undertaking which cannot be fulfilled without disaster and harm. I'll take no risks with either inflation or depression. Labor believes that its great responsibility is to the people and it believes that only Labor can protect the interests of the people. Chifley won the 1946 election. The Liberal Party, formed by Menzies in 1944 and at the polls for the first time, were understandably not happy. One of the lessons that Menzies took out of that electoral defeat was that they had been out-advertised, that Labor had brilliant advertising tradesmen, uh, as he referred to it, on the job. Stephen Mills, University of Sydney political scientist and former Labor speechwriter. He's tracked the Liberal Party's response to its 1946 debacle. Well, the president of the Liberal Party, Dick Casey, a very significant figure in his own right, had heard that the Labor Party advertiser, a fellow called Sim Rubinson, a very successful advertising uh, agent from Sydney, was unhappy in the service of the Labor Party, unhappy with the bank nationalisation policies of Chifley. That led to uh, Casey basically hiring Labor's advertising tradesmen for the Liberal Party advertising campaign for 1949. Radio was accorded a special place here. It had been used by Robert Menzies in the early 1940s to recover his political fortunes after losing the Prime Ministership, resulting in his now famous broadcasts, The Forgotten People. Macquarie University media historian Bridget Griffin-Foley. When Casey proposed to Menzies a series of broadcasts that would address political issues in a way that would create a favourable atmosphere for the Liberal Party and the Conservative cause, Menzies was quite receptive to that. Casey used the term air conditioning, which is a really sort of evocative term for the capacity of the airwaves to penetrate Australian households and indeed penetrate the minds of voters in households around Australia. 
they hired an actor uh, by the name of Richard Matthews. And Richard Matthews was the voice of John Henry Ostrell, the central character in these radio broadcasts slash political ads, advising his listeners on the perils of socialism and the importance and wonders of free enterprise. There were about 200 episodes of them, each around about 15 minutes long. They ran twice a week on commercial radio stations over about 20 months leading up to the elections which were held towards the end of 1949. We have 22 episodes on 13 gramophone records. We don't have any paperwork about how they came into our archives and um, we've only been able to make assumptions based on the packaging that we found them in. And this is the packaging that I'm holding here. It says uh, radio transcription to radio station 2GN, Goulburn, New South Wales. Handle with care. This is episode number 106, John Henry Ostrell, Van Winkle wakes up. And on the other side is episode 164, Island Adventure. Island Adventure. Island Adventure was written on behalf of the Liberal Party of Australia by Percy Cogger, with Richard Matthews as John Henry Austell. Hello everyone, this is John Henry Austell. Now this is the story of two men. They were wrecked on an island in the tropic seas, comparatively remote from the shores of Australia. It's the story of what happened to them and of what they learned from the experience. Where are we, well? What's happened now? I'm wet through. I'm due to preside over a workers' conference in Freeville in three days' time. As soon as the sun gets up, I think you and I will have to have a workers' conference on our own. All on our own. The government should see that there's an emergency store of food on all these lonely islands. So you're the sort of cove who expects to be spoon-fed by a government, even out here? Expecting a flock of Canberra ravens to come here and feed you? It was just eroding, it was eating away at the Chifley Labor government and constantly, not in a starkly negative way, but just by constantly promoting issues of rationing, of central planning, of shortages. But he doesn't do it in a hectoring way, he does it in this very honey-voiced way. And then it goes to other actors who are using voices a la radio series. Hard to do business without breaking the law. So many shortages and restrictions that my wife's almost a nervous wreck. All very true, but... We keep on electing the blokes who stand behind these things. It's time to stop grumbling and do something. Our opportunity is just around the corner. Let's make the most of it. It, it, it was just marvellous when I first listened to them. John Henry Ostrell doesn't sound like an actor at all is just so classically BBC, the middle-class white Australian that the Liberal Party under Menzies were definitely trying to uh, appeal to, and it reminds me a lot of my grandma. <laughs> that beautiful, relaxed voiceover by a very almost British-sounding man, these themes about trusting the party that which we'd like you to vote for were very sophisticated for the time. Political advertisements tended to be quite short, 30 seconds, and political broadcasts often took the form of speeches from town halls, broadcasts of policy speeches. There also was the fireside 
chat, the notion of a sort of intimate talk, the 15-minute block was quite standard for serials. So what the Liberal Party was doing was basically appropriating a really familiar form of radio programming for political ends. With John Henry Osterell, there was no real expectation in the audience at that time that he was a real person. People were used to listening to radio serials. I think more recently we've seen advertising where an actor is hired and purports to be a real person and fake tradie in a Liberal Party advertisement of 2016 was a great example of that. He was somebody who purported to be talking as an actual tradie, but he was an actor. So fake tradie then, of course, became a meme and a hashtag handle. I'll tell you what happens when you get a war going on the economy. People like me lose their jobs. So I reckon we should just see it through and stick with the current mob for a while. Over the time the John Henry Austral serial was broadcast, there was a very sort of neighbourly, familiar tone to each episode. John Henry Austral, on a note of everyday inquiry, asks the question, does shopping shorten women's lives? Did you ever pause to think how your day is divided up? Work, travelling, eating and leisure, if any, in a busy modern day world. Oh, good morning, Mrs. Gates. One of the great strengths of the John Henry Osterell campaign is that it brings the external political environment right into the living room, right into the house. Well, Bill, how did the meeting go? We have to go through a strike. Part of the electoral strategy here is women. Women could vote and women had been neglected, the Liberals believed, by Labor. Middle-class women were an important part of the Liberal Party structure and certainly an important target of the Liberal Party John Henry Austral campaign. Hello, Freedy, you're early. Oh, Mavis, I'm heading for the butchers first. I suppose you're going the round. Well, uh, I'll just pop into the grocer's. He said he might have some soap. What a lovely morning you're going to have. The depiction of women voters as preoccupied with the domestic has had a lengthy run in political ads. Meet Whinging Wendy, filmed at her kitchen sink in 1987. Mr Howard, me and my family would like to ask you some real simple questions about your free money for nothing promises. The fact is, Mr Howard, we won't get tax cuts because you can't make the spending cuts. By the late 1940s, the vast majority of Australian households had at least one radio set. The family tended to listen together. Serials that were on in the evening typically attracted all of the generations in the household, the parents, the children, the grandparents, if they were living there. The John Henry Austral series was broadcast on 80 commercial stations. That is the majority of commercial stations in Australia. And these 80 stations were both metropolitan and country. So um, the serial had the capacity to reach the majority of Australians. The episodes followed a script that had been written by Pip Cogger, who worked for the Hanson Rubinson Advertising Agency. The John Henry Austral scripts, while they were written by a professional agency, were sent ahead of recording to the Liberal Party state branches. They had the right to veto them, and sometimes did. 
But sounding out the branches was very different from the market testing of later advertising campaigns. There was no market research in the late 1940s, certainly in the way that Labor in 1971, in the lead up to the 1972 campaign, did deliberately use surveys and the It's Time slogan itself was focus group tested. Very early use of focus groups. More recently, of course, we see every advertising campaign pre-tested. The It's Time campaign has been discussed alongside John Henry Austral. Both began a year out from the election, both were expensive, and by an irony that you might not credit, both were the work of the same advertising agency who had returned to Labor in the 1950s. The John Henry Austral campaign was very important in Australian political communication techniques and political campaigning because it really showed for the first time sort of a focus towards long-term moulding of public opinion and trying to influence people over a longer period. John Henry Austral was concerned with more than immediate government policy. The series was a launching pad for Cold War thinking, the red poison of communism, as it was put, it was a subject to which Austral returned on many occasions. The problem of communism in Australia can no longer be safely ignored. The time has come to expose it, openly and fearlessly, regardless of possible consequences. The danger of communism is a present danger, an immediate danger. Something which is threatening you as you sit listening to this broadcast at this moment. The episode Educate or Perish begins in a shearing shed. I particularly like it because my brother is a shearer. A number of shearers are sitting around talking about the recent communist coup in Eastern Europe and one of them is saying that communists in Australia want this to happen as well and that the Labor Party are just going to let them get away with it. The portrayal of Labor as soft on communists was objected to by the ALP at the time. The Tribune newspaper called for a boycott of the goods advertised on air during the Austral broadcasts. Labor sought to limit dramatisation in political broadcasts. There's a long history of objecting to the claims made in political ads and a shorter history of the attempts to do something about it. Sally Young. There have been debates about whether we should legislate for truth in political advertising, and that's always a really difficult area. Our system is quite... Well, it's designed by the parties and they've designed it in a way that it gives them as much free reign as possible to get their messages out. There have been legislative efforts over the years to try and put the advertising genie back in the bottle in some way. Most famously in 1984, then Australian Democrat Senator Michael Macklin proposed a truth in advertising legislation, which was actually briefly passed before everybody had an attack of the vapours and realised that it was completely impractical. It raises immediately the question of what is truth? What does that mean in a political context? And anyway, do we want lawyers and courts to determine truth in a real time of an election campaign as opposed to the voters? So if political parties want to make claims which are false, erroneous, exaggerated, extreme, well then, 
they've got the right to do that in this country. What voters need to do is to just put their clever hat on and see through false claims and identify true claims, and that's what we have an election for. The John Henry Austral series was announced openly as the work of the Liberal Party. So too another radio program it produced in 1949 for rural voters, the Country Quiz. Details of financial support by the Graziers Association appeared in the press. It's the financial arrangements rather than the content of political advertisements that have given rise to regulations in some parts of the world. In terms of political advertising rules, we're we're pretty permissive in Australia compared to some other countries. Um, And in terms of fundraising and spending during elections, we're very permissive as well in terms of letting the parties, you know, raise funds, but they also get public funding and we don't tell them they have to spend it on certain categories and we're not limiting spending overall and so on. So it's quite a open playing field for the parties in terms of trying to raise money, spending it how they like. Our system is quite, well, it's designed by the parties and they've designed it in a way that it gives them as much free reign as possible to get their messages out. The John Henry Austral initiative is significant partly because of the huge cost that it entailed. The Liberal Party had to pay for the scripts, the actors, airtime at the 80 commercial stations, even though mates rates were negotiated by Casey in many instances. But the party also spent tens of thousands of pounds on advertising the serial in newspapers across Australia. Casey was also a very effective fundraiser and he would hold what we would now call fundraising dinners. Australia, you've been sleeping, brought down to your knees. We've lost a lot of living in the dark of these three years. We can look towards the future and the way things ought to be. Turn on the light, Australia. The 1949 campaign was as expensive as anything that took place for at least the next couple of decades. The 1972 It's Time campaign was expensive. The 1975 Turn on the Lights campaign were also because these were very blanket nationwide electronic, well, in that case, television advertising campaigns. Now, why is that expensive? partly for production reasons, but the big cost, obviously, is buying airtime on the commercial networks. And even to this day, television advertising is typically, we're not quite sure because the parties don't tell us the numbers, but usually television advertising is the largest single budget item of any campaign. The television stations profit a great deal from television advertising. Radio stations do too. I mean, this is this is a quite a lot of money that's going to the pockets of media outlets that parties are courting. It would always interested me that in the United States they have rules that the television stations have to offer the airtime to the parties at the lowest possible rate. But we didn't have that rule, so the television stations would jack up the price. These commercial networks are public licensees and it would be highly difficult but not impossible to make a condition of a broadcasting licence the provision of free advertising time for electoral purposes during campaigns. I think the commercial broadcasters would hate that because they're making good dough out of us 
every election, but it would be one way of cutting off the need the parties experience for funding. Money is sometimes a blunt measure of effectiveness. John Henry Austral was not repeated after 1949. By some accounts, Dick Casey thought Austral's voice had become too shrill. Perhaps there was simply no need, and technology was changing. The Liberal Party wins the December 1949 election in a landslide. I think the Liberal Party really would have been struggling to raise similar amounts of money to make similar broadcasts on such a scale in the early 1950s. And people such as Menzies, people who had travelled, knew that television would become a part of political campaigning in Australia. So radio was a much more nimble medium. Being a radio broadcast enabled the John Henry Austral campaign to represent much of the electorate, from shearers to young mothers, in workplaces and at home. And as technology has changed again, political advertising calls for a new nimbleness. It's a lot more targeted now because they're able to use digital methods and try and communicate with specific audiences. Previously, it was more broadcast. So something like a television ad campaign, for example, if you're trying to put an ad during the nightly news, you know it's going to reach a very large mass audience in in the old days, in the 80s, for example. Now, television news isn't so popular. People are on devices, they're doing other things. You might be crafting different messages for different segments of the audience who are going to different websites. So it's a lot more targeted now than it was. So the John Henry Ostrell campaign certainly exemplifies what became the truth for 60, 70 years subsequently, that elections and the commercial media are intimately involved with each other. Maybe just in the last 10 years or so, we're seeing signs of change where election campaigning is going back to an older stage of door knocking, face-to-face contact. A lot of it is data-driven, but recognising the truth that really effective political persuasion can take place at a door knock or over the phone. There's evidence in the last couple of campaigns that the John Henry Austral model has maybe run its course. The John Henry Austral campaign was just one of many tactics used by the Liberal Party to win the 1949 election. The radio series' exact contribution, compared to films, rallies and print publicity, was never calculated. Certainly, its 15-minute twice-weekly broadcasts seem excessive now as 15-second TV ads repeat a party's core message. But maybe the strategy of discussing political ideas is poised for a greater place in the future. The party's rank and file, pounding the streets and the handsets of the electorate, talking to voters and hearing their concerns. Face-to-face contact, informed by personal data or otherwise, opens the door to a two-way conversation. And despite his purpose in delivering a party line, John Henry Austral recognised the appeal of that. Perhaps you have a definite and constructive idea about matters discussed in this broadcast. Will you write to me about them? I'd be glad if you would. Just send the letter to the station to which you are now listening. Address it to John Henry Austral. Thanks to the speakers in today's program. Sally Young, Lisa Milner, Stephen Mills, Bridget Griffin-Foley and Katie Wood. 
thanks to the Liberal Party for permission to broadcast extracts from the original John Henry Austral recordings from the 1940s. 22 episodes are available online at the University of Melbourne archive. You'll find the details on our website. Thanks to the archive for their assistance and to the ALP for permission to broadcast their earlier campaign material. I'm Rebecca Huntley. John Henry Austral, A Short History of Political Advertising, was written and produced by Jennifer Bowen, with sound engineering by Richard Gervin. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.